All right, friends, we're back in First John this morning. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Terry and Matt are handing out um, some, some handouts. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this day. Thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity to um, enjoy a day that is a foretaste of our eternal rest with you. And we give you thanks for that, that gift. And we pray that you would bless us now as we prepare for worship by studying your word together, um, by discussing um, John's epistle. Uh, may your spirit um, grant us um, his presence and his wisdom um, as we contemplate these things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you all today. Um, we're continuing to study First John together, and um, today we'll get into chapter 2. And I wanted to start by... Um, uh, well, I can just start first by saying are there any any comments or questions or things from last week or week before that anybody wants to um, ask before we begin to look at the text this morning? Anything to talk about from previous weeks? Okay, well, let's jump in. I'm going to, to give us context, I'm going to read um, the first chapter of First John and then uh, verses two, 1 to 14 of chapter 2, which is the portion we'll look at this morning. So John writes, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship, or koinonia, or communion with us. And indeed, our koinonia, our communion, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, koinonia with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have koinonia, fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the halasmus in Greek, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to, to know him, that is Jesus, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is, Jesus Christ, walked. 
Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's begin this morning um, looking at the first several verses of chapter 2. Um, there are obviously carryover themes and, and um, words and emphases um, from chapter 1. Um, sin is one of those uh, emphases that's carried over and what it means to uh, walk in the light is another emphasis that comes over uh, from chapter 1. And we'll see that as we uh, work through these things. So remember, at the end of chapter 1, um, John has just assured his readers that um, if they confess their sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them. And um, he says that if any of you um, say you have no sin, then you make um, God out to be a liar. Uh, so he begins chapter 2 writing, My little children. And I love that address that John uses um, at different places in this epistle. Um, in many ways, this is a primary theme, um, emphasis of this letter. Um, our identity as children of God, that this is who we are, this is our appropriate name, um, this is who we are at our core, uh, we are God's children, and, and John addresses them that way. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Um, John, throughout his epistle, is not going to let up on the calling to holiness and the calling to righteousness. Um, um, I don't believe, based on the rest of the scriptures and also what John has said at the end of chapter 1, that that holiness is a, a kind of moral, absolute moral perfection um, that he believes his readers are, are meant to, to embrace. And he knows that's not possible, um, given, the, given the indwelling nature of sin um, and the corruption of our natures. Um, uh, but um, he, he is calling constantly his readers to... Um, holiness, um, to uh, putting away sin. So he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, but then immediately, as he does, he turns around and says, but if anyone does sin, remember that's a condition that he assumes is true for himself and for his readers, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Um, uh, that word there in the Greek is paraclete, um, it's the same word that's used by Jesus to describe the Holy Spirit um, in John 16. Um, sometimes it's 
com translated there as comforter or helper. Um, here it's a, it's a word with a broader range of meaning though in the Greek and here it's I think appropriately translated as advocate. Um, so a helper but a helper in a particular way, a helper who um, acts in your defense essentially is the, is the meaning here. We have a paraclete, an advocate with the Father um, if we do sin. And who is that? That is Jesus Christ, the righteous, um, the one who is um, without sin, the one who is truly uh, fulfills um, all of the law, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then John goes on to say he is the propitiation. That's the word helasmus in Greek. Um, it means um, it's, a, it's a word that was used in the uh, world at that time to describe the turning away of the wrath of a deity. Um, so to turn away wrath um, is to be a propitiation. Um, that, that's the gift that turns away the wrath of God uh, or God's judgment. Um, he is the propitiation. Um, he is not only the one who offers um, intercession for us, he is himself the sacrifice, the propitiation, John says, for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, I've written some uh, quotes here from Calvin, and I just, as you're thinking about 1 John yourself, would really um, commend John Calvin's commentary on 1 John to you. Um, it's freely available on the internet. I have a print copy, and you can order that if you want a print copy off the internet, of course, as well. But, um, but it, if you just Google 1 John uh, Calvin, um, his commentary will turn up. And I, I really think his commentary on 1 John is excellent. Um, Calvin, um, whatever people's impressions of him might be, um, when it comes to his commentaries on the scriptures, is, is he's just so pastoral and easy to read, candidly, um, compared to the kinds of commentaries that get published today. Um, Calvin is like way easier to track with and just follow and understand um, for someone, you know, anyone pastor, a layperson, whomever. Um, and I think, I think he just does a great job in First John, just really um, explaining and, and wrestling with what the apostle's up to. So would highly recommend that commentary to you. Uh, Calvin says, John means that we are not only called away from sin by the gospel and that God invites us to himself and offers the spirit of regeneration, but that provision is made for wretched sinners so that may, they may have God always propitious uh, to them, uh, merciful, um, and that the sins which bind them do not stop their being righteous, for they have a mediator to reconcile them to God. So this uh, is one of the great passages in the New Testament about the mediation of Christ for us on our behalf and our sin. Christ's intercession, um, Calvin says, is the continual application of his death to our salvation. And um, of course, he's drawing there uh, from what is written in the apostle, uh, the epistle to the Hebrews um, uh, about the intercession of Christ. And I love that definition that Calvin gives, Christ's intercession um, even now um, that has continued for 2,000 years and will continue on uh, forever is uh, his continual application of his death to our salvation. Uh, Christ died once for all, but he continues um, to be our mediator in an active way before God, even, even right now, even today, as we gather this Lord's Day. The reason why God does not impute our sins to us is because he looks upon Christ, the intercessor. We receive great consolation, Calvin says, when we hear that Christ not only died 
wants to reconcile us to the Father, but also continually intercedes for us so that in his name, an entry to God lies open to us. And so it's the continual um, advocate, um, uh, advocacy of Christ on our behalf um, that guarantees um, us, that gives us confidence of the forgiveness of our sins, um, the continual forgiveness of our sins. The forgiveness of our sins and the future um, are all uh, guaranteed by the work of Jesus, not only once, but continually. Um, so one question, though, that might come um, from this, uh, these two verses is, what does, Cal or what does John mean, rather, by um, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, right? What does that mean? Um, um, there, you know, it, I would say right off the top that this doesn't mean um, that somehow the whole, I don't think this is a, an argument for uh, what we this sometimes describe as universalism, right? That somehow Christ's death has atoned for um, all sin in such a way um, that there will be none who will be judged by God in the last day, none who will receive eternal judgment. Um, I don't think that's what um, John is describing. Um, Calvin um, offers one solution. Um, he says, Christ suffered sufficiently for the whole world, but effectively only for the elect. Um, that is a doctrine that's commonly known as <clears throat> definite atonement or limited atonement or particular atonement. Um, that, and I think it's obviously a biblical doctrine. I think the Bible teaches this. That, and I think Calvin sums it up really succinctly and well there, as he does so often with different theological concepts. Um, the doctrine of limited atonement is essentially that Christ suffered in a sufficient way for the whole world, but in an efficacious or effective way only for those who are God's elect, um, who are uh, united to him by the Spirit um, according to God's uh, will. Um, although I allow the truth of this, Calvin says, I deny that it fits the passage. He says, I don't think that right here John is talking primarily about definite atonement or limited atonement. He says, Calvin's saying, I think he means something else. Um, he says, for John's purpose was only to make this blessing uh, common to the whole church. So Calvin argues, and others have argued along after him, therefore under the word whole, um, uh, John does not include the reprobate, but refers to all who would believe and those who were scattered through various regions of the earth. Um, so essentially what Calvin is saying is that um, John is assuring his readers that um, Christ's sins are propitious not only for them, but also for um, all those who belong to God um, at that time in history and also in all the times to come. That that's what um, John means by the whole world, this also for the sins of the whole world. Um, Robert Yarborough um, gives another um, thing to think about. Um, Robert Yarborough is a professor at Covenant Seminary. He came after I left, so I don't know him personally or never had classes with him, but he's um, a good scholar, and he's got also a, a great um, contemporary um, commentary on John's epistles, and that would probably be a commentary that I'd recommend to you if you wanted something more modern than Calvin. I think Yarborough's commentary is excellent. Um, he says, there is a universal dimension to Christ's death for our sins in the same sense that God's promise to Abraham has a universal horizon. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you, God says to Abram um, in Genesis 12. And so Yarbrough is saying, basically, there are lots of promises of God that have universal um, 
um, ap application that are, that are promised universally to the whole world, not only to those who respond to God in faith. Um, so what does that mean? Um, Christ's death, Yarborough says, should be seen as for, quote, the whole world in the sense that it provides the basis throughout all human history for God the Father to extend patience and forbearance to those who merit his rejection, i.e. every person since the fall until the day Christ appears, uh, reappears rather. Um, so essentially what he's saying is, is to think about um, when Christ dies on the cross before he dies in Luke's gospel, um, he says to the Father, um, Father, forgive them for they know not uh, what they do. Um, he, he, he asks for forgiveness. And as far as we know, um, by all appearances, he's asking for forgiveness on people who are not going to become believers, right? Um, maybe some of those people that participated in his crucifixion did, um, but his, his um, petition there is, I think, pretty obviously um, also for people who, who will not repent, um, who will not um, turn to God um, for salvation. Um, and so what does it mean for God to forgive them for their sins? I think it's what Yarborough is advocating here, and I think I understand this argument, would support it, that, that what Christ is asking for is for the Father to be merciful, even to those who are putting him to death, even to those um, who um, are, are hardened in their hearts against him. And so Christ's sacrifice, his death on the cross, um, forestalls the judgment of God. Um, it doesn't put it off permanently um, for the wicked, but it, but it holds it back. Um, and, and for 2,000 years, in a sense, um, God's ultimate wrath and judgment has been held back, um, not just, I mean, certainly because he wills it to be so, but also because of the death of Christ um, um, is, a, is a propitious sacrifice in that way. Um, the reason God, um, Yarborough says, can temporarily overlook human sin uh, he refers there to Acts 17, where Paul is talking to the Athenians and says, you know, God has overlooked um, for a long time, um, essentially human rebellion and wickedness. Uh, but now there's a day where he's appointed a man who will judge the world. Um, and he's uh, given witness to this by his resurrection from the dead. Um, um, God has, God, the reason God can temporarily overlook human sin, so to speak, not judging it eschatologically on the spot, and this is true, right? There's all kinds of wickedness in the world that God doesn't immediately judge. Um, that should, he, I don't know, should, he, he could. And he's, by all rights, has every, um, uh, you know, he, he, he might and do it in a just way. Um, and that's true for all of us, but that's also true for our unbelieving neighbor as well. The reason God can temporarily overlook human sin in this way, Yarbrough says, is that the car cross carves out a place for the exercise of divine long-suffering with not only the already saved, but also those yet to be saved in view. And this is one reason for the delay of God's judgment, right? Um, so that more and more of his people can be born into the world and come into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if God had just judged the world entirely, um, uh, say in 70 AD or something, um, you know, there's 2,000 years of human history that doesn't exist, um, and, and the growth of the church and people um, becoming united to his um, son. It is hard to separate, uh, Yarborough says, God's stay of execution on the nations and at times on his own wayward people from the rich store of mercy occurring from Christ's death, even if that death is clearly not ultimately redemptive for all those who reject the gospel call based on it. 
Um, so this is just something to think about, and this is something to think about also. We're, we're talking today about um, God's common grace, quote-unquote, um, in the Noahic covenant. Um, after um, the flood, uh, Noah offers a, a massive sacrifice. Um, Genesis tells us he took some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered them as burnt sacrifices to God. And it, it was a propitiation, right? It, it, God smelled the pleasing aroma from the sacrifice, um, and he was pleased, um, um, Genesis says. And then he says, and now I'm going to establish my covenant um, with everyone, um, not just uh, Noah and those descendants of Noah who are faithful, but uh, with all living flesh, including even the animals. And we find in Genesis 9, God establishes the covenant. And that sacrifice that Noah makes, of course, as we know, all, you know, we know that none of the New Old Testament sacrifices were efficacious in and of themselves because they were animals. They were all um, foreshadowing and in some ways offered in, in, in anticipation of the true Lamb of God who would be sacrificed on the cross and the Son, the only truly acceptable sacrifice. And so, so when we think about God's common grace, we shouldn't think about it apart from the death of Jesus. Um, the crucifixion. God is merciful to the whole world um, because of the death of Christ. Is for, in some sense, the whole world. It doesn't mean that we're universalists. It doesn't mean we believe that all men um, will be saved in the last day. But it does mean that we think that the whole world benefits from the death of Christ, even those who hate him, even those who participated in his death, even those who remain uh, rebellious against God. Um, all of them uh, benefit from um, the propitiation that Christ's death um, uh, secures um, for them. Any thoughts about any of that? First two verses there. Yes, sir. Sure. Yeah, it shows up in the epistle all the time, yeah. Yeah, and that's the Greek word, cosmos. There. Um. So I, I, I just like to talk about that. Like, oh, yeah, so it means like, like I just see it. Yeah. I agree. I concur. Anybody else? James? Cosmic scope, yeah. Yeah, it it's a world changing event, right? Absolutely. No, that's yeah. I think that that's parallels what Jeremy was mentioning that that 
that is definitely one of John's emphases from beginning to end. Uh, he, he begins by talking about, um, uh, in the beginning uh, was the word and all that, and, um, and then he ends by talking about um, if everything that the Lord had, Jesus has done, all the books in the world, uh, the world could not hold all the books that could be written, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Um, um, Yeah, no, absolutely. That, yeah, exactly. And that's the connection with the Noahic Covenant, right? The Noahic Covenant is that God is going to be benevolent toward his creation. He's not going to destroy it again with water in the same way he did with the flood. He's actually going to um, sustain life, um, seed time and harvest, day and night, um, months and years. These things will not cease as long as the earth remains. Um, so God, you know, as Jesus, um, this is a gospel text this morning, I'll reference in my sermon, Jesus' words to his disciples that they need to love their enemies. Um, and the reason he gives for that is because God loves his enemies. Um, he says, God makes the rain uh, to fall on the unjust and the just. He makes the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, and he does that, yeah, because of the propitiation um, of Christ ultimately. Um, and you see that in the sequence of events in the Noahic covenant where the first thing that happens is this great sacrifice that Noah offers and it has benefit beneficial effects for the whole world um not only for him and his faithful descendants yeah kim yeah yeah that's great it's a great connection yeah right and that i think fits into what calvin's saying which i don't i don't think calvin's wrong i think he's correct in the sense that it's it is for the whole world yeah so kim's talking about here it reminds her of of revelation and the vision um, that John has of all tribes and languages and tongues being gathered before the throne, um, worshiping the lamb. And that's exactly, that's certainly part of what's happening here is the promise that the gospel is for everyone. Um, all right, anything else about these two verses? All right, we'll take one more and we'll move on. Yeah, James, you're fine. Absolutely. And even thinking about that word paraclete being like Christ, I, maybe I, I've heard the word paraclete in the Gospel of John explained as communicating a kind of brotherly relationship, a kind of coming alongside the person. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a frequent definition of how it's used in John 16, yeah. Right, yeah, th and that's what Hebrews says, right? He would, he the firstborn of many brothers, as they talk about in Hebrews 2. This is why he had to become incarnate, was so that he could become the firstborn of many brethren, um, so that he could have siblings um, and, and lead them into relationship with God. And, and as Hebrews so frequently emphasizes, um, 
maintain that relationship with God, not just establish it once for all, but, but continually uphold it and preserve it. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's, I think that's a helpful way to think about that word paraclete. And of course, there's a similarity there with the Spirit in the terms of the way that the Spirit brings us alongside Christ, unites us to him, and those kinds of things. Yeah. Good. All right, let's um, look a little bit more at uh, these next few verses. And by this, um, John says, we know that we have come to know him, and the him there is Jesus, right? Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he's just said. Um, if we keep his commandments, if we keep the commandments of Jesus, <clears throat> whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Now, just think about that for a moment, that what John is saying here. Who is he obviously um, copying these words from? Who said this first? If you keep my com- this is how you know if you love me. Jesus, right? You keep my commandments. I mean, this is basically just a restatement of what Jesus is saying um, or said to John and the other apostles in the Upper Room Discourse, um, beginning in John 13 and 14 and continuing on um, in chapters 15 and 16. Just a continual emphasis on, um, if you love me, keep my commandments. Um, if you want to abide in me, um, follow in my ways. Um, you know, if I have washed your feet, now wash one another's feet in imitation of me. Um, this emphasis that Jesus gives in that Upper Room Discourse on obedience, but obedience in a particular way, obedience to the commandment of Jesus to love one another and to serve one another. Um, this is how you can be confident that you're in him is if you, um, if you keep his commandments. This is how you know you're abiding in him. Um, so this is, this is obviously, I think, dependence, the d- dependent on the words and teaching of Jesus himself in a, di- in a very direct way. Of course, all that John writes is dependent on those things. Um, Calvin says, knowledge of God conceived from the gospel is not idle, but obedience proceeds from it. He says, the commonest evil in all ages has been an empty profession of God's name, um, which is something to think about. I think he's not wrong um, that, that it is the empty profession of um, faith in Christ um, that, that does evil, that is evil um, when that's the case. Um, um, there needs to be an integrity, a consistency between our confession and the way that we live. The knowledge of God leads us to fear and love him. For we cannot know our Lord and Father as he shows himself without on our side showing ourselves to be dutiful children and obedient service. Um, he goes on and says, John does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law keep his commandments and no such instance can be found in the world. So he's not talking, John says here, about perfect or absolute um, you know, flawless obedience, but those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. And that's what um, Calvin's, I mean, that's what John's describing. That's what Jesus is describing, I think. Godliness and holiness of life distinguish true faith from a fictitious and dead knowledge of God. Um, and then Calvin rightly talks about this idea of abiding in God, abiding in Christ being the Um, the point of the gospel. Um, He says, for if it is the end of the gospel to be united to God and there can be no communion without love, then only he really progresses in faith who heartily cleaves to God. 
a likeness and life and actions will provide will prove rather that we abide in Christ. So if if the end of the gospel is um, being united with God um, uh, through God's Son, our Lord Jesus, by the work of the Spirit, then um, that abiding, that communion, that union will lead, um, um, John is saying, uh, to a likeness between us and the God to whom we're united, um, our Lord Jesus. We take on um, God's, God's actions, God's perfections, God's attributes. Um, and this is very similar again to the logic that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, you must be perfect as my heavenly father, or as your heavenly father is perfect. Um, you must become like God in that way. You must imitate him in terms of your ethical and moral behavior. Any thoughts about those verses, that section? Anything to talk about there? This will not be the last time that John talks about this concept in his letter. He's going to keep, keep coming back to it in many ways. Um, I think it's important to say that this kind of thing functions both as a test and a means for our assurance. Um, so the, the consistency, the integrity of um, our obedience is rightly understood a test of our uh, faith. Um, it, it is um, something that we should be open to um, considering and to, to watching and observing in our lives and asking others to speak into our lives. Um, you know, is this something that is true about me? Am I walking in obedience to the commandments of Christ? Um, but it also is intended to be, I think, um, according to John, um, a kind of means of assurance, right? One of the ways that we know that we belong to God is um, our walking in obedience to Christ. Um, so it should be something that's encouraging to us, um, not only something that is kind of a, an evaluative test, um, it's also something um, that should give us assurance. And this is something that I often talk to people about who are struggling with their assurance. I try to talk to them about their life and about well, what does your life really look like? Now, of course, they're aware of many imperfections, uh, typically, but um, I can stand back and say, well, that may be true, but as I look at objectively your life, I see a life of faithfulness. I see a life of walking uh, with your spouse. I see a life of walking faithfully in your work. I see a life of walking faithfully um, um, in terms of uh, the church family and all of these things. And so you should be confident that that you're doing these things, not just in your own strength or because you're moral, but because God um, loves you and God has brought you into union with his son and the fruits of that life is showing forth um, in your behavior over time. Um, so, and, and our confession talks about that, good works. This is what we mean when we say good works. We just mean obedience to God's law. Um, good works are meant to be, our confession states, one of the means by which we are assured of our standing with God. Um, they are a gift to us in that way. All right. <clears throat> Verses 7 through 11. John goes on, he says, Beloved, I'm writing you, and note again that language, beloved. He keeps giving his readers names, names like little children, names like beloved. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Um, uh, just a few comments here. One, I'm not entirely sure. I know exactly what John means, but I'm not writing a new commandment, but an old commandment. Um, obviously, he's arguing for what he's saying is nothing novel. It's based on other revelations in the scriptures. It's not Im- totally clear to me if he is saying this is a commandment that exists, um, you know, way, way back in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, uh, certainly, this commandment does. <laughs> you look at Deuteronomy, for example. Deuteronomy is all about loving from the heart and obeying, obeying the law and um, by your obedience, knowing that you are being faithful to God. Um, or perhaps he's referring um, to the words of the Lord, Lord Jesus, that were written, you know, not very long ago. Perhaps he's calling those uh, teachings of Jesus the old commandment that they've had from the beginning. It's not totally clear to me. Um, but he says, um, it is a new commandment in you that I'm writing. And essentially the new commandment is um, the way you know you're in the light is if you love your brother. Um, so he, he's putting more flesh on what it means to obey the commandments of Jesus. He's focusing that obedience on the command that Jesus gives to love one another. Um, and he's also here, I think, um, sort of working with some of those concepts of light and darkness. Um, remember John 9, for example, the story of where Jesus heals the blind man and makes him see. Um, and then there's this whole play on that dynamic all throughout the rest of that chapter um, where um, it, his parents and the leaders of the synagogue become those who are blind because they can't recognize what Jesus is doing, right? The blind man can now see because he's in union with Jesus, but um, those who are upset about what Jesus is doing are now themselves blind, and they can't even recognize that this blind man has been transformed by Jesus and that this is a good thing. This is a thing that uh, they cast him out of the synagogue, right? Because he keeps saying that Jesus healed him. Um, So they're the blind ones. Um, and I, that whole concept of blindness um, in the enemies of Christ is something that is all throughout the Gospels, right? Um, it's a common critique in the synoptics that Jesus makes of, of the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel, religious leaders, that they have become like blind guides or they are like the blind leading the blind, right? They're in darkness, um, so to speak, and can't see the light that Jesus is bringing So I think some of that's in the backdrop here too. Um, Jesus is arguing for, um, you know, the the, the real test of whether you're in the darkness is whether you love your brother or not. If you hate your brother, you're still trapped in the darkness and you don't even know it. The darkness has blinded your eyes. If you love your brother, you're abiding in the light. Again, Jesus is relying on (laughs) the words um, of, of our Lord, or John is relying on the words of our Lord Jesus who said in John 14 and 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then what is the commandment that Jesus gives there? Again and again, this is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Um, So the the commandment that Jesus is talking about most specifically in that upper room discourse that will prove our abiding in Christ is his commandment to love one another, to love our brother in the flesh or our sister in the flesh. Calvin says, 
the love of God prepares us to love men. And in fact, we also testify our dutifulness to God by loving men at his command. Why should we love one another in the church? It's not because, um, you know, the argument isn't in the gospels or in the epistles because we're also lovable, right? Um, because it, it's just easy or because it, you know, it does something for us um, uh, inherently. No, we, we're, we're commanded to love one another, right? We love one another fundamentally out of obedience to God, um, I think is the argument that Jesus makes and John is making here. Um, however this may be, Calvin says, it is always certain that love is the aim to which our life should be directed. And I think that's a great quote. Love is the aim to which our life should be directed, right? What is God's plan for your life? Well, God's plan for your life is that you love him and you love um, your neighbor, um, that you love others. Um, now, what are the particulars? That's a, another question, but we can all be confident that that's God's plan for us. That's what he wants. Love is the aim to which our life should be directed. That's a great test for us. Is love the aim for which our life is directed? Love of others, love of God. And this should be the more carefully observed, Calvin says, and that nearly all choose almost anything rather than this one commandment of God. Right, we would, and I think this, he's on to something, right? We would like our piety be, to be judged um, by almost anything rather than loving one another. Um, because it's, it's far easier um, to, you know, say, you know, I'm just gonna, I don't know, control some aspect of my private individual moral behavior um, and say that that's the barometer of my life with God. Uh, you know, how much I curse or I don't know, whatever it is, um, the thing that you might try to manage and say. But, but the thing that the New Testament is constantly pointing us towards is love for one another is the test of our, um, our obedience, of our piety, of our spirituality, of our holiness. And, it, and we per I think he's right. That, that it's hard, it's so hard um, to love one another. Um, because the ones whom we're called to love are those who sin against us, um, who hurt us, um, who um, reject our love at times. Um, and yet we are called as a, as a sign of our being in Christ to love those people, to love those sinful people, and for them to love us. Um, so I, I love that. Um, Calvin says, fictitious sanctity dazzles the eyes of almost all, whereas love is neglected or at least put in a corner. Um, so maybe things don't really change, you know, this is written, uh, you know, whatever, 400 years ago or whatever, um, uh, more than that. Um, uh, but I think this has always been a common problem in the church, this challenge to love one another. Are there any thoughts about any of that before we wrap up this morning, this commandment to love one another? B makes it new. Right. How we see that commandment. Yeah. But it seems that it's also, uh, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. It seems that part of what transforms that commandment for us is 
No, I think that's right. Powered in a new way to keep it, certainly, through our union with him. He makes it new in his demonstration of it. Yeah, I like that, James. I think that's helpful. Anything else? Any other thoughts? Ari. Sure. Yeah, I can comment on that briefly. So, I mean, clearly in the Greek and comes through in the English, this is written in a highly structured and formalized way, um, in a way that the rest of the epistle is not. Um, in terms of its, you know, was it a hymn or something that he adapted? Obviously, we don't know that. Um, people have certainly speculated. Some people have think that, you know, maybe this was inserted or whatever. I mean, I don't. I don't think that Orthodox scholars think that, but that's a theory that's out there, right? Um, I, I think I think John is certainly the most poetic of the um, gospel writers, right? You can see that in different ways, um, particularly in his prologue, but in other places too. Um, and and that's how I take this. This is just kind of a more elevated speech that happens here, and um, it it does serve as kind of a transition point in some ways in the epistle too. Um, I would say. Um, but I, I just take it as him writing in a more formal and direct way that, I mean, I think it's quite beautiful the way that he writes it and sums up. And there's, there's a pattern here, right? Um, I'm writing to little children. I think that little children is, a, is an inclusive statement. They're all little children. But then he seems to distinguish between the young and the old. I'm writing to you fathers. And I don't think that's just, this is a, you know, in the Greek, the masculine um, could encompass both sexes. And so I think he's writing here to the, to the older ones, basically. Um, um, I'm writing to you young men, so the younger ones, I think young men, young women, uh, middle-aged and younger, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and there's this consistency. Um, he, he begins saying, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake, so he's reflecting back on what he's already said. Um, then he's saying, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. That's repeated in verse 14. Um, and he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you overcome the evil one. And of course, that's repeated to the end of 14. Um, you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. And then there's that central statement again. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Um, and how do we know the Father? We know the Father through the Son, the one in, in whom our sins are forgiven. So it's this kind of highly structured, I think, um, and really kind of beautiful summary of the Christian life and and the Christian life from birth to death in many ways um, and it's very simple what he's saying here right these are not complex theological concepts right he's saying your sins are forgiven you know him who is from the beginning which I think is our Lord Jesus you've overcome the evil one you've overcome Satan and you know the father I mean, these are just like basic kind of like core things that are true um, about us and he says I write to you because these things are already true in you right you, you don't, I'm not delivering some kind of um, novel teaching. I'm just affirming things that you already know and you're growing in. In some ways, we never grow beyond these things. We never grow beyond learning that our sins are forgiven, that we know the Father, that we've overcome the devil. Yeah.
John knows that his end is near, yeah. No, I think that's probably true. I think John is probably the last surviving apostle. Um, and yeah, he probably has an understanding of that reality when he writes this. Um, either, he, either he is already or he knows that he will be the last um, living apostle connected to Jesus. And he's just summing up. And I love the story. It's apocalyp or apocryphal, so I don't, I don't know if it's true, but... Um, Polycarp said that at the end of his life, John uh, would be carried around in a stretcher and he would just say, little children, let us love one another. Um, again, and like that was like his, his tagline or whatever, you know. Um, everything that I need to say to you, he would say, is summed up on this. Little children, let us love one another. And I love that. I mean, I, whether that's true or not, I think that's a great summary of what um, John is teaching us in his epistle, that we are the children of God and that we're called to love one another out of and because of that identity that we share. All right, let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks um, for your word. We thank you for its simplicity. We thank you for its directness. Thank you for the way John writes with such um, just straightforwardness to us, Lord. And I pray that by your spirit, these words would sink into our hearts, um, that they would uh, bear fruit in our lives, that you would um, make us more and more like your son, Jesus, that you would give us um, continual confidence in the forgiveness of our sin because of his intercession for us, and that you would help us, Father, um, to reject pride and to embrace the humility of loving uh, one another, loving our brother, loving our sister, um, loving those actual people who we live in community with um, here in the church, in our homes, in our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.